Is political correctness killing comedy? Hello and welcome. I'm Mark Sidwell and this is Counterculture, the cultural discussion show that laughs in the face of censorship. Today we're discussing the state of comedy. With university campuses increasingly dominated by speech codes and with the BBC still dominated by a left-wing culture, is talent being frozen out? And how hard is it for anyone to be really funny in a culture of perpetual offence? Joining me today to discuss all of this is a multi-talented panel. First of all, we have Rafe Hadelmanku of the New Culture Forum, who's also a historian and commentator. And we have three brilliant stand-up comedians. We have Simon Evans, who's known for his Radio 4 show, Simon Evans Goes to Market, and who's touring a new show around the country now. Uh, we have Konstantin Kissin, who's also the co-host of the free speech podcast and YouTube show Trigonometry. And we have Dominic Frisby, songwriter and author, best known to Brexiteers for his anthem, 17 Million Fuck Offs. <laughs> Thank you all for joining me so much. Now, let's start with the, with the big picture. Is it true to say now that comedy is in a bit of a rut, in the mainstream at least? I mean, obviously there's lots of talent around this table, but is mainstream comedy not uh, as good as it used to be at the moment? I mean, Rafe, what's, what's your feeling? Have we lost the fire somewhere? Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, I would say that, I often said if I was to go on Mastermind, my, my subject would be British comedy in the 20th century, looking, because every decade I found comedy that I found engaging and amusing, and which pushed boundaries for its time. But there was a transformation that occurred in the 80s, and we're living through that era now, of alternative comedy. It's Alexei Sale, really, who started all this with the, with the Comedy Store, who brought in this political element to humour, or let's be honest about it, a Marxist element to humour. And so comedians now, if you're not on side, and if you're not seem to be punching down, uh, you'll be basically un unable to uh, get any shows going, despite the fact that the public at large enjoy that sort of comedy. And there's a, there's a huge disconnect now between those who make comedy on the BBC and those people who actually want to, want to enjoy comedy and go, go to YouTube to find other people who are supplying that. So, yes, there's good comedy out there, but it's not being provided on the main platforms of, of mainstream television. I mean, do the, do the professionals agree? I mean, Simon, does that, does that chime with some of your experience? Well, I made a programme for Radio 4, uh, which went out last September, looking at this, and I think it's slightly more nuanced, perhaps, than Rafe has suggested, but there's a, there's a grain of truth to it. Alexis Sale, uh, to take that as a kicking-off mm. point, certainly did initiate a, a, a revolution in stand-up comedy and the comedy store in the 1979 or whatever it was, the first few years, there was a, a, an eruption of, I guess, student politics, but it wasn't, like, demanding, it wasn't, like, actually advocating Marxism so much as kind of, <laughs> it was aware of Marxism, it was kind of steeped in it, but it was self-deprecating about it and he understood that it wasn't, you know, he was he was mocking it and he was mocking his own pretensions and his own understanding of it and at the same time, you know, his, his kind of frustrations as a fat little half-Jewish <laughs> scouser in a tight suit, you know, he was, he was, he knew it was an absurd figure. He wasn't like Jeremy Corbyn kind of earnestly preaching to right. you about the need to redistribute wealth. But, <laughs> but there has been a kind of presumption in the last 30... I think it kind of it simmered for a long time. It has actually erupted with Brexit. It's been quite interesting. Just to give a really bizarre analogy, um, I flew to Aspen, Colorado, a ski resort, about 15 years ago to do a, a comedy festival there. Um, but the uh, on arrival in Aspen, which is at 8,000 feet, 
uh, a tooth abscess which had been dormant for God knows how many years suddenly erupted due to the change in atmospheric pressure and I was in agony and had to go and see a dentist. Luckily I had travel insurance. I think Brexit's been a bit like that. Something has been dormant for many years in the comedy industry and the comedy community which nobody had really examined or noticed and suddenly this kind of eruption and this kind of drawing of lines and parameters and whose side are you on mentality expose the degree to which an extraordinarily unbalanced um, distribution of views had gradually taken place. And so sure. whether it's not exactly left wing or right wing, that kind of somewhere everywhere kind of mm. dynamic, which you know people have discussed, is, is more to do with it. But comedy was suddenly exposed as really only being Remainers and a handful of, of, of people who were Brexit or even a little bit sceptical or willing to admit they didn't quite get it, you know. Yeah, sure. And, and that, I think, has created a, um, a sense which you quite rightly say that now 50% of the country don't really feel like they're getting their meat. And this is creating problems for the BBC who are having mm. to justify a licence fee and yet, you know, are not, are not actually serving half the public. Well, I mean, Dominic, as someone who's, you know, made Brexit at the heart of, of your comedy, how, yeah. how do you find it? Well, there's, there's a lot of different things going on, and it's, as Simon says, it's very nuanced. And it's, it's, it, you can't say that, you know, comedy is not as good as it was. Uh, one, one observation I'd make is there's no one today who is as big and as known in the public eye as Ronnie Barker or Morecambe and Wise mm. or Tommy Cooper or one of the greats of the 70s or the early 80s. But one reason for that is that there was only one, two or three channels mm. at that time. Mm. So everybody's eyes focused on that thing. There's so much more proliferation of media. It's sort of harder to become that known mainstream person. But I do think there's something very wrong at the BBC. And it's, if you like, it's every channel's dream to have a hit comedy show that they can export around the world because it will make that channel's fortune and it will keep that channel afloat for years and years and years. Every production company is trying to land the hit and money is being thrown at comedy left, right and centre. And if you look at the money that gets invested and then you look at the actual output, something's very wrong because there's so little really, really good stuff. And, and the really good TV series, the really successful ones, seem to slip through by accident. They slip through in spite of the system, not because of the system. And so, for example, you have something like The Office, mm. which um, the commissioning editor of, of BBC, Radio, uh, BBC Two at the time, um, you know, rejected time and time and time again. And somehow, I think Stephen Merchant was doing a production course and they hired an office for a week and they filmed it and they did the pilot and the commissioner still didn't want to show it. And then they showed it and then it got a really... So it kind of happened in spite of the system mm -hmm. and it made Ricky Gervais. And... Um, you know, who, by the way, is in himself a great champion of free speech and all the things that, that you, you champion on this show. So there's something badly wrong with the system. Now, I can, I can give you some of the reasons why I think, what I think is wrong with the system. Um, perhaps we'll come to that in a moment. But, but there's, the, the other comment that I'd make is, if you look at what... TV comedy is very curated. What goes mm. on TV is, is curated by some decision maker in commissioning. Yeah. And so what you see on telly is very different to what you see live. And if you look at what's going on in the live circuit and some of the clubs and some of the experimental nights and, you know, we have Comedy Unleashed that mm -hmm. we've all performed mm -hmm. at many times and there's many great cabaret nights and the Free Fringe up in Edinburgh. There's some really great stuff going on. So to say that comedy is is 
is bad or worse than it was. In many ways, it's better than it's ever been. You just wouldn't know it by watching telly. Right. I mean, is that? Do you find that too? I think, both think everybody's yeah. kind of put, put, uh, got it exactly right here because I think what Simon says is absolutely true. That I think in the last few years, particularly, it hasn't just been about Brexit or Remain. I think it's, it's more even if whether you're woke or not. So, for example, I'm not right wing, right? But I'm treated as if I'm right wing in the industry because I'm simply not really woke and super left wing. So uh, it's become an industry which increasingly squeezes out people who are non-conformist, which is a very <laughs> odd thing for comedy to be because comedy is supposed to be the place where people who don't conform come together and create something. That's actually what comedy should be about. And if you think about the comedians that you respect throughout the years, right? these are people who would have pushed back against what the predominant narrative of that time was. I mean, Bill Hicks, who's one of my favorites, his last ever appearance on Letterman was actually not shown because it was considered too controversial. Mm -hmm. And it was shown 20 or 30 years later, and Letterman actually apologized to him posthumously because it wasn't actually that controversial. It was just controversial in that particular cultural moment. So I think that's right. And I also agree with Dominic. I think uh, in terms of what's happening in the comedy circuit, uh, we may very well be, in my opinion, on the very precipice of a new golden age of comedy. Um, the question is, will you ever see that on TV in the next five years? That's a different conversation because, as Dominic says, the people who seem to have their fingers on, on the control panel there, uh, they're very keen to, to present a certain type of comedy and drive sure. that certain type of comedy. Uh, a, a couple of days ago, a friend of mine who, who, who's a very famous musician, he was offered to do a show on a big TV channel in this country where he would learn stand-up uh, and raise money for charity. Mm. Ah, my brother-in-law, my brother-in-law is David Hay, the boxer, and he's been asked right. to do that as well. Right. So. So, so my friend was offered this and he said, yeah, great, I'd love to do it, but uh, I'd love to do it with a comedian who's a friend of mine, so let's have Andrew Doyle or Constantine. And they said, no, no, these people are not approved. <laughs> yeah, You're officially so it, could, it could be that ah. they've just seen my comedy. I don't know, but uh, but 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 the point is that they knew who we were, but we were not approved, right? So th there is an agenda there. And look, I'm not someone who ever complains about this stuff. I don't think it helps. Uh, and as someone who likes to challenge what the mainstream narrative is, I don't expect mm. to be welcomed with, with open arms. I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think if you're going to challenge the mainstream, you, you should expect not to be necessarily liked by the mainstream. Uh, but I, I do think that that definitely happens in TV, which is why I think Nick Cohen wrote a piece in Standpoint mm. at the time we're recording this, saying that conservative comedy should be really good now because there's a lot to punch against, but it's not good. Uh, and well, has he just not encountered it? Well, that's my point. Yeah. That's exactly my point. Because if you just watch TV, other than maybe Simon or Jeff Norcott, there's mm -hmm. very few people mm -hmm. who, who are not even conservative, who are just not super left or super woke that ever get through. So then the general public create that impression. As, and as, as rightly mm -hmm. been said, that's a problem for the BBC in particular, which I actually think is a much needed institution if they can sort themselves and out. And it's a problem for the left, incidentally. Exactly. Yeah. Because, because the left, I mean, uh, the, uh, the Labour Party is, is fast trying to render itself unelectable, having mm. learned all the l wrong lessons, apparently, <laughs> from 12th mm. of December. Mm. It's now arguing itself into dust mm. over issues that affect less than 1% of the population, you know, the, the definitions of transphobia and so on, and people being... It desperately needs to be satirised in order to wake itself up. I mean... You know, it's almost like the dynamic of playground bullying, which nobody wants to see ever, you know, escalate to the point where kids are in casualty. But there is a degree of enforcing social norms and letting kids know when they're 
wildly out of kilter, you know, which can be valuable. And that satire can produce that desired effect for the left as much as it can give succor to people on the right who are just Absolutely, and yet you will see, uh, you know, you and I both make jokes about Jeremy Corbyn at the time of the election. There was very few, if any, people making fun of that on TV. You, you no enemy any. to the left. Yeah, right. that, there's no, no yeah. to have that kind at all. So there is an d- imbalance. Yeah, and there's a very interesting lesson if you look at the early history of the Edinburgh Festival. Mm-hmm. And the Edinburgh Festival began in 1948. There was a, uh, an Austrian Jewish refugee, a chap called Rudolf Bing, who wanted to put on a festival uh, to heal the wounds of war through the medium of the arts. And he looked all around various places. He eventually decided on Edinburgh and he raised £30,000 of subsidy. And he was going to put on the very cream of, of European and world art. So he put on Sadler's Wells Ballet, the Halle Orchestra, the Vienna Philharmonic, um, uh, the Old Vic Theatre Group, all these great institutions of the arts. And he put the festival on. And there was a couple of local Scottish semi-amateur theatre groups, one um, quite left-wing Marxist group, and they applied to do this festival. Mm. And um, there was another puppeteer who also applied. And they were told they weren't good enough. Mm. And they were just, no, we only want the very best at this new festival. And they, they, all these guys thought about it, and they just came anyway. They didn't get in the official brochure. They came, and they were known as the Uninvited Eight. And one of them put on, the puppeteer put on a show in the foyer of the cinema. Mm-hmm. Another one found a disused restaurant. And there we saw the birth of the Edinburgh Fringe. And the following year, they were so successful, these uninvited guests, 12 of them came. And the year after that, you know, 13. And it gradually grew and grew and grew. Mm -hmm. And by the mid to late 50s, the Fringe, it it was only coined the Fringe by the mid 50s. The Fringe was outdoing the main festival to the extent that the main festival poached all the talent from a fringe and put on this show with which they planned to kill the fringe mm-hmm. called Beyond the Fringe. Mm-hmm. The idea was it was a snub of the fringe. Beyond the Fringe became a huge hit and it only made the fringe even more popular. And this went on and on and on to the extent that now the fringe dwarfs the main festival. In fact, the fe- main festival, to save itself, has, has, to, has had to merge with the fringe. Now, the main festival is like the BBC. It's got some guy who knows better than you choosing what you watch. Mm. Whereas the Fringe, anyone can go. I decide if I'm going to go, not you. And I decide if my show's what, what I'm capable of doing, not you. And so on. And, you know, it's the difference between YouTube, where anyone can put stuff on. And, you know, what commissioner would ever have known that cat videos would become a thing or whatever it is? And, and yet, you know, that's why the Fringe is so exciting. Then the Fringe began to kill itself, became subsidy and became uneconomic. And the market reacted quite efficiently and gave birth to this thing called the Free Fringe, which is like the most creative place on earth, possibly. And so, you know, the market has found solutions. The problem with television <laughs> is that it is, it is owned by a few curators and it's very difficult if you don't tick the right boxes to get through the curators. Yes. You're, you're absolutely right. And I think this is where, why the future for comedy is, look, is, is looking very bright, as long as it's being consumed in different ways. Mm. I mean, I'm a great fan of Bill Burr in America. I think he's the, the <laughs> best comedian out there. He's the comedian's comedian. And he actually doesn't like to get called into the debates about woke issues because he says, I don't need the approval of the woke brigade because mm. his career doesn't depend on television. He sells out to huge audiences and he has Netflix shows and his Netflix shows are hugely popular around the world. So when he comes to London, he can sell out the Royal Albert Hall on repeated nights, even mm. though he's never had any exposure on television in this country. And I think that's the model comedians here need to use, bypass the BBC, because you have to ask yourself, 
which of those BBC com comedians that we see every week would flourish if there were no BBC, or would they flounder? Mm -hmm. And I don't mm -hmm. think Nish Kumar et al. would be doing much apart from university campuses if they were actually free of the BBC. And uh, all the comedians who actually are popular would av avoid university campuses for the precise reason that their comedy would, f f would fall flat there. So I think, yes, com comedy has a great future ahead, and it's things like Netflix and YouTube that are going to basically be the savers. Ne savers. Netflix is interesting in that point of view. They, they have put on Bill Burr, and they've put on Dave Chappelle, who's also defiantly anti-woke, and they've also put on Hannah Gadsby with mm -hmm. Nanette, which was the single most woke sort of anti-comedy, almost. I mean, it was quite explicitly anti-comedy. She, she basically spends an hour... Um, regretting that she has attempted to diffuse the tension surrounding her own sexual orientation <laughs> through the use of comedy for her life. You know, Sounds I, it's not my kind of show, but it, she sold out the Sydney Opera House mm. where it was recorded. Bill Burr recorded his Netflix special at the Royal Albert Hall in London, despite, as you say, being an American meat comedian no, with no access to BBC. So word is getting out. If you're sure. a good comedian, Bill Burr is a very talented comedian. I mean, yeah. it's not easy to just go no. against the woke grain no. and be big. You've yeah. got to yeah. be funny. You've got to be, you know, you've yeah. got to be sure. great. But I, I, but think I have I to say, sorry, just one, I just want to interrupt you yeah. because the um, it's interesting I think the BBC has always been curated and has always had gatekeepers and back in the day when they had the monopoly before YouTube or whatever it still had gatekeepers but they were of a very different mindset a lot of the people who for instance commissioned you know uh, John Cleese and the Monty Python yeah. or the Frost Report had been at university with them and, and then they get a job in the BBC and they go there's this chap uh, Cleese really funny I think we should get him and his, his friend you know and yeah. so you get now a lot of people would regard that as you know irredeemably you know just obviously you know mm. on the face of it morally bankrupt way to, to run a TV network and yet it created extraordinary you know genius that will stand the test of time yeah. whereas now a far more egalitarian approach is uh, you know and actually they would probably argue that they are not gatekeepers in that traditional sense that is much more like a set of algorithms mm. <laughs> that sort of decide there was less there was less competition in those days wasn't yeah. there to get yeah. on yeah but so they have said i think a couple of years ago the controller of comedy said well we wouldn't make monty python yeah, they're sure a bunch of yeah, white boys yeah, from yes. oxbridge so and, and they won't get on now yeah yeah, yeah. 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 so the even if they're the that extraordinary said that we need more woke comedy so there is an agenda there but look the, the point that simon makes about hannah gadsby i think is an important one because none of us are saying look we need to shut down woke comedy no one's saying no, that exactly. what we're really saying is look we keep being told that we live in this society that's obsessed with uh, diversity and inclusion brilliant let's have more diversity mm. you know if someone if some if we have a, a, a huge political event like the brexit referendum mm. let's have comedians who think it's, it's a terrible idea brilliant let's have them on tv let them make their jokes it's it, for some people that's really funny but if someone makes a song about brexit cr making like uh, of you know of the European Union criticizing the EU, let's have that on as well. Let's have more diversity of thought. Yeah, but what about the counterforce that's going on at the moment, which is this this sort of woke culture that says, well, you can't offend anyone. Mm. You know, I wasn't there. You were invited to SOAS, and they were saying, well, you can you can make jokes, but you have to fill out this form and say you'll be kind to everyone. Yes, right? you have to be respectful and kind, and they had a list of about twenty things. At which point, comedy becomes impossible. So if, if that culture starts to take hold, doesn't that become a a real threat is that well that's why I turned down the contract because I, I think there are some people who are trying to move us in that direction and of course students have always been a bit crazy um, in that way you know particularly at SOAS let's be honest yeah. but uh, my concern is that as any culture that comes from university will eventually seep out into into broader society so th they're students today but 10 years from now they're going to be you know labor MPs 
journalists, etc. And that's when they start to influence our society. And you can see that happening. So uh, I think, but the point I'm making is I think all of us are not calling for other types of comedy to be shut down. Mm. We just want more variety of comedy to be shown on TV and for people you know if someone you know Dominic myself Simon Alistair Williams a bunch of us have had viral videos of our clips of stand-up go you know have be seen by millions of people around the world and, mm-hmm. and around the country so there's demand for, for people to joke mm-hmm. about Jeremy Corbyn or to joke about you know hating Brexit or whatever uh, but for some reason that's not being filtered through and I think I, I think we need more of that and I think you're absolutely right. I was on a, I don't know if you know, the Now Show, which is a, a, like a long-running uh, Friday night uh, comedy, topical comedy, and they did a Now Show Brexit special, which was on the Sunday before the Brexit vote in 2016. And it was hosted by uh, Punt and Dennis, who are, you know, liberal Oxford, Oxbridge graduates, and they had their usual sort of suspects on there uh, doing a liberal take on it. And then they had a debate about in which they wanted to, uh, two, two comedians to go head-to-head pro and against Brexit. And they got me in to do the pro-Brexit one. And Ed, Ed Morris, who I wasn't even, I wasn't a Brexit winner. I, was I wasn't really a Remain voter either. I was like, I'm not sure, and it's interesting, but... I didn't really think it was going to happen. Lucy Porter was was uh, was who wasn't particularly uh, you know energised about it was the remain. But, but the interesting thing was, I went on and I wrote these things out, and my big point was that, like there were questions like, um, "What is it you've got to get you against Europe?" And I said, "Well, I, you know, this, I think I, I, I refute the validity of the question. It's not whether I've got to go against Europe; it's what have I got against." unnecessary supranational systems of, you know, uh, 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 extraneous tiers of organisation. And I've got, my, my experience of that is running one in the sixth form block when I was at school, you know, it's a racket, I know how these things work. And I did this stuff and I said, yeah. Anyway, the point was, this was a Radio 4 audience and they were the Now Show audience and they're extremely left. But I got easily the biggest reaction on the night from the crowd mm. to the extent that I've always worried that I might have actually caused Brexit because, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the response was so... Enlivening because this crowd were desperate to hear the other side of the coin. All they'd heard for about 40 minutes was everyone just kind of basically, oh, Farage is an idiot and, you know, it's like a bunch of knuckle-dragging racists and so on. Somebody stood up and just made some really quite facetious, you know, arguments <laughs> in defence of Brexit. They were like, oh, my God, it's like somebody opened a window. You know, there's just a bit of fresh air. I think that, for me, proved the point, and yet the BBC certainly didn't seem to learn from it because there's, there's been no more... You well, know, Jeff, they've given that. Jeff, Jeff Norcott, yes. he's had plenty of airtime, and, he's and done Jeff's well. done fantastically well for yeah, it, he has. and he's, he, every opportunity he's been given, he's been taken because well he's been deserved. very funny. He's a very good comedian. Yeah, absolutely, and Jeff's been very good for a very long time, mm. but... Like the, if you get into an argument with somebody in the BBC mm. and you'll go, He's the this guy. other side yes. is not represented, and you will go, there's this program, there's this program, there's this program. They're yeah. all clearly from that Remain worldview, and somebody who's trying to counter that will go, yes, but there's Jeff Norcott. Mm. Yeah, but exactly. like Jeff is like one guy <laughs> who occasionally appears for a couple of minutes we on have one our program. Token person. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and almost well, like Sooty, to be honest, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> so, what's what's that, Jeff Norcott? Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you think Jeremy like Corbyn? Yeah. I mean, it's very funny. He's a joke writer, but he's not really providing any. You yeah, know, and, and if you look at the way that he's always introduced on the Mash Report, it's the conservative voice of Britain. 
Mm. Yes. It was like a freak show, this wheel on, yeah, yeah. Yes. this exceptional creature that yes. we've managed to find in the wild, <laughs> in the jungle. Yeah. And uh, whereas, in fact, we know that 50% plus one of the population actually side with him. He's made to look as if he's the, the, yeah. the anomaly. And Jeff, Jeff is like, you know, he's a white sort of working class guy. He dis describes his dad as Mondeo yes, man. Yes. Mm. He's as typical a, he's an a English person as you could get. He's a really. classic 80s Tory, yeah. isn't he? Not, yeah. Well, this is why it's so And even he struggles on Mock the Week. I've seen him, you know, have moments. I mean, he's, he's been and gone now, and Mock the Week is probably on its downward trajectory mm. now anyway. Mm. But it's, it's, it, I've seen, and he's talked about, you know, basically you do a joke which has a, an underlying right wing sentiment on Mock the Week, and the air is sucked out mm. of the room because they mm. create such a strong. Uh, Momentum in a certain yeah. direction that yeah. you, but you can't just turn that around. It, it's more like you've gone. <laughs> 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 like, What's he going with it? And <laughs> Ray's point is why this whole situation is so unsustainable because what you're really talking about is the fact that the majority of the country are not being served by the comedy that they're being forced to watch. And that's yeah. why we have the conversation about the BBC license fee because yeah. mm. the comedy thing is replicated elsewhere. It's replicated in the news side of it, in the other parts of entertainment. I think BBC News, I think, is pretty well balanced, personally. Mm. In fact, it may even have a slight right-wing balance. I'm not saying it does, but it may do. I can see the argument for that. I think I think their drama department is... Oh um, is I think that's... It's like <laughs> anthropology. I mean, it's so riddled with... Uh, <laughs> Over-politicised. It's been infected. Well, with, all the, with all these with things, the, the marketplace is decided at the end of the day. And I think YouTube will be an excellent way, way to test and see how many views yeah. oh, the yeah. BBC comedians get versus those who never appeared on the BBC. And that would be a very good way to sort of anal analyze yeah, it. Yeah. But there's one, there's one thing about the BBC. It is the most, even now, it is the most fantastic platform. And, mm -hmm. you know, I can sit here moaning about, you know, this structurally is wrong and curation and all the rest of it. But, for example, when I wrote my book, um, my book is sort of consistently, you know, two to 3,000 in the bestseller list. And then I went on uh, Radio 4 Start the Week, mm. and suddenly it went up to 200. Wow. Like, and it just yeah. go zoom, and then stayed there for a week, and then went back to its sort of yeah, yeah. natural yeah, place yeah. in the sort of two to 3,000 range. <laughs> so, <laughs> Return to ignominy. But the, no, but the, the, that's well, actually pretty good. That's pretty good for a hardback. But the point is, if, like, you know, you get some comics who they get a spot on Mock the Week, and they're yeah. very funny in it, mm. and suddenly their tour sells out. Mm -hmm. Can you know, I tell it really you is the most. Wonderful platform was Top Gear. Now, Top Gear was the most profitable. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't, but I think it was the yes, most profitable was. worldwide yeah. sales it show. Mm -hmm. It's not a comedy show per se. In fact, it'd be hard to say exactly what it was. But I know several people who worked in television, all of whom acknowledged it was a work of genius. The production, the structure, the presenters were kind of clunky, and Clarkson in his dad jeans and everything were a bit kind yeah, of, full of you. You were like, God, it's dad jokes, but mm. it had this kind of life it yeah, just had yeah. this vitality it wasn't my cup of tea at all i have to say i would occasionally go on walking holidays with my mates and we'd end up watching it in the cottage in the evening and i would be going oh god really you know you like, want to watch what, whether a toyota can drive through this river but they but they, they had something that really appealed to masses of people clearly yeah. No show in my lifetime has angered the left so much as that yeah. show infuriated them. Mm. A couple of slightly off-colour jokes, one of which, yes, I can see there was one joke that was a bit racist and should probably have been edited out. That, you know, 
gradually this momentum builds. We've got to get it. And then Clarkson punches a producer. Now, that was obviously a, a massive misjudgment on his part. But if the sentiment had been there, if the will had been there to save him and mm. turn him around and get him to make the abject apology and go on some sort of course about not punching producers, there would have been, <laughs> it would have been possible to save that show. Instead of which, they leapt on it. It mm. was gone almost overnight. It was like what they did to Scruton. You know? It was mm. like, this is, this is the final straw. And you're going, where are the other straws? There have been two other straws in a show that is making you millions worldwide. And so they left. And now I don't know how well, I don't follow this stuff, how well it's doing on Amazon, or indeed I know the, the follow-up shows really struggle. But it was the determination of the left that there could not be a show on the BBC which was essentially that mindset writ large and doing well and a tr- you know if these blokes want to watch match of the day we can't stop them because you know but that's it and that's all I'm they sorry, get there is this really e- it, i'm going to call it what it is is this evil thing and it's 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 worse on the left than it is anywhere else yeah. of wanting to no platform anyone who expresses a, an opinion that you don't mm. like mm. and so it happened with Top Gear it happened with Scruton like even like you know if I get on Radio 4 just to talk about my book there's a hundred people why is the BBC giving this right wing sh- shrill a platform and it's uh, uh, why is it that the people on the other side of the argument never feel the need to, to no platform the, 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 well, the, the, the left it, or is that is that well, it's an interesting. We think they're wrong, and they think we're evil. Well, they, yes. like they exactly. did in the nineteen sixties in America, but they, it is extraordinary how you're they talking don't about McCarthyism. Yeah, yeah, but they don't seem to have drawn that parallel. But we are very much we're closing in on that now. I think you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if you think well, about well, this is the eighties and nineties, yeah. it was in America the the religious right. That's why the comedians of that period, you know, the the Carlins and yeah. the Hickses, they would push back against religion, which is why you don't see anyone it's talking about religion, yeah. right? So, but I, I think in terms of what we're talking about, what you you were talking about particularly there's an interesting double standard when it comes to offensive jokes because there are a number of comedians who've been on the BBC for a very long time who've been making incredibly offensive jokes mm. you know Frankie Boyle talking about a celebrity's disabled son in a very kind of disparaging way and that's all fine as long as politically you're in the right place just like you're talking about Top Gear yeah. right those offensive jokes are fine whereas if, if someone who is not left-wing or worse, even right wing, were to do those same jokes, then instantly they're punching down and they're terrible. So mm. I think that interpretation of people's behavior is very dependent on where they're seen as being politically. Yeah. Well, frankly, Paul's an interesting case because he was offensive up until 2010. He was punching down in 2010. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, 2010, that was the time you had the coalition government coming in, but that's also when you had Russell Brand and Jonathan Ross, who had to resign from the BBC over there call to Andrew Sachs and there was a sea change that happened in comedy at that time people don't realize that comedy became more bland after Frankie Boyle I mean Mock the Week for example he, he never goes back onto Mock the Week now he was the reason people watched Mock the Week mm. there's been this cleaning up this puritanical wokeness has yeah. come through mm. comedy since 2010 and I don't see people commenting on that much and that's when you see things on uh, have I got news for you everything changed in the last 10 years and became more bland more saccharine you can only make fun of Tories or people who are privileged. You can't even make fun of Meghan and Harry, despite the fact that that's punching up, clearly. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah that now, was extraordinary, they're now, they're now a, the, a, Meghan a the Meghan thing does seem to have brought it into extraordinarily sharp relief, <laughs> even more than Brexit. You've got a bloke on Question Time who's accused of... of, of abusing his privilege for criticising a princess, <laughs> an actual princess. I mean, it's like, how much more absurd? I mean, yes, he's born into an acting family yeah. and he's probably had a couple of jobs that he might have otherwise not have got, but he's not, 
I mean, I'd never heard of him beforehand, so he hasn't had that much privilege, you know. The Fox He's Dynasty, amazing. isn't the Windsor yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, exactly, yeah. But, no. I mean, this stuff is very powerful. I mean, yeah. and, and, I mean, there have been cases out in the population, haven't there, where, like, someone just retweets on social media or, or on their Facebook or something yeah. a comedian's routine, and then suddenly the police are knocking at their door or yeah. they're getting yeah. fired from their work. Yeah. The I bloke mean, at Asda who, yeah, got, bloke who at Asda. got sacked for posting a clip from a DVD they sell in Asda. <laughs> 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 To name drop, I was having drinks with Jim Davison's son last night, who said that his dad was brought up before the uh, as, as a hate crime for comments he made at his own birthday party, which someone recorded, and he ended up having a hate incident uh, alleged, which wow. didn't go any further. But that just shows you now, not even your own birthday party is free. Yeah. But yeah. all those guys, the, the comedians of the 70s, um, were basically no platformed by the Alexi Sale, mm. yeah. uh, Ben Elton, that generation, mm -hmm. all those, the Jim Davidsons and, and even Benny Hill and all those guys and commissioners were actually scared to commission. You know, they didn't want to be, even though, you know, Jim Davidson was excellent on the generation game and he was the only guy who could, who was as good as Bruce Forsyth was and, and he, and, and um, you know, oh. Benny Hill got the viewers in. Larry Grayson Larry Grayson. Oh, no, sorry. Host. Did Larry, I take that back. I was thinking yeah. of the, the latter evolution. But no, he evolution. was, I mean, he did function. But, he, you know, and, and he's, you know, he's a British, and a lot of that stuff, if you judge the stuff that came out in the 70s, by the standards of today, then of course it's unacceptable. But standards change with there, time. There so was you a have thing, to, wasn't there, where they, but, there was a sort of default, like none of these guys are okay yeah, anymore. They were all and no then, platform. one by one, some of them, like Les Dawson, were kind of reviewed yeah, and allowed and back, back in. in. But the idea was... Two yeah. Ronnies sort of survived. If you, even if you watch some of... We all think we love the Two Ronnies. You watch some of the Two Ronnies stuff now, and you're like, whoa, I know, crikey. funny enough, I was yeah. talking about this. I, I, I checked into a travel lodge, and they had yeah. the TV tuned to a one of those channels where it's just yeah. like old two runnies in UK the evening and, and instead of being the best of the two runnies you saw what an average two runnies show well. was like and you were like Oh my God! I'm a bit younger than you guys, and and, the th and the, what I notice incredible to me is actually it's it's much later shows that now are completely beyond the pale. So, for example, yeah. Harry and uh, uh, Harry Hill, and what was it called, Harry and Megan? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> very good, Harry and Paul. Oh yeah, Harry yeah. and Paul. You watch some of that Harry stuff. Harry Enfield. Ha yeah, yeah, it was Harry and Harry Enfield. Uh, Harry and Paul. They did. They the are like quite edgy. Actually. Right. Are edgy. But but that was that. like yeah. ten years ago. Yeah, yeah. but it yeah. wasn't yeah. thirty friends, years ago. Come, which okay, friends? Like, yeah, friends is problematic are now. Trying to ban friends. Yeah. Or something, come come fly with me. Right. Right. Come yeah. fly with me was a great comedy written by David Williams and the other chap from Little Britain. And there they were, you know, dressing up in blackface as Shirley Bassey and as this big, large black woman. It was great comedy, but of course now they have to, they've had to apologise for something made within the last decade. Mm. That's how quickly <laughs> things change yes. and how the young eat their own. Yes. You know? But we have to celebrate the BBC too, because we have to remember the BBC gave us the golden age of comedy. Yeah. The BBC was the driving force that nurtured comedy, so let's not be too harsh. What we need is another Bill Cotton. You know, yeah. He was in charge of light entertainment, he gave us mm. everything that we had mm. in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, in the 90s, David Rennick, you know, fantastic writer, One Foot in the Grave. I yeah. mean, there's such great, great comedies choice. that were put out. I mean, ITV only gave us Rising Damp, really. That was the only comedy. Mm. Everything else was done on the BBC. Yeah, so we but need to celebrate reason, them and bring them back There's on. another reason that so much was on the BBC. They repeated their stuff and ITV never did. Mm. So there are great shows that were and on ITV that it. never got repeated and have been forgotten. But interestingly, the BBC hasn't repeated Python that much. They've always been a bit... They a used bit to. Weird. They used to. They used to. Yeah. They well, there's a whole scene of so like trans rights in there now that you would... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if you, if you look at, like, 
I can talk about, I mean, if you want, I can tell you unknown great ITV, unknown ITV sitcoms if you want. Because I've sort of done the around the castle. There was, there was one called Lucky <laughs> Fella, which starred David Jason uh, as one of two Cockney brothers living in a council flat set in Brockley, not wow. in Peckham, in Brockley. Uh, only David Jason was the stupid one. And they drove around in a stupid three-wheeler car. No. And it, yeah, watch it. Really? It was just the template for wow. Only Fools and Horses. Yeah. The template. <laughs> and, um, but it was only ever shown once. And if you look at the, the viewing figures that Faulty Towers got. First series of Faulty... There was only ever 12 episodes of Faulty Towers. That's right. And the first episode... The first series was repeated four times and the viewing figures went one and a half million, three million, six million, twelve million. Yeah. So it, it was the repeated things. I think that happened things. with The Office to some extent Yes, it well. did. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that... It, when the BBC champions something and repeats it and that's, mm. that's, that's when it becomes... Well, they still well uh, repeat Dad's Army, don't yeah. they? Yeah. Quite a yeah. lot. But, you know, ideologically, ideologically in principle, I'm a big fan of the BBC. I actually think oh. it's great to have a national institution that people from both sides can <coughs> come together and watch. The problem we've had in recent years, as we've been talking about ad nauseum, is that it's become increasingly directed at a, a certain sliver of society. Mm. And if, if it can get back to having a general plurality of thought, plurality of comedy, plurality of drama, all, all those things, I actually think it could be uh, it could be a huge benefit to this country. You know, my grandfather, when he, he escaped the Soviet Union, for actually his one of his biggest crimes was listening to the BBC. It was mm -hmm. a voice of freedom uh, to people. Mm. So the BBC can be a radio a too. Uh, it was BBC World Service. <laughs> 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 but actually, what I think one of the problems with with BBC and TV production is mm. is like what happens when you start out in your twenties as a comic maybe you I actually started when I was 27 but you start out and there's there's always loads of you doing open spots and it's just the natural way of things that not everyone can earn a living there just isn't there aren't enough gigs for everyone yeah. who starts out to earn a living maybe there were in the 60s or 70s or something but there just aren't now and so you just see people falling off the wayside and so particularly on the club circuit where it's the quickest way to earning a living you have to be you know you have you just have to be pretty good to earn a living in the clubs and so what you tend to find is a lot of guys who just aren't quite, quite hack it, or they go and just do Edinburgh shows every year without doing the regular circuit, mm. at which point they become more interesting in Edinburgh because you're like, oh, well, I can see that guy on the club circuit and they go and see him in Edinburgh. But a lot of them just go, they don't make it as a performer, writer-performer, and so they go and work in TV, which is the kind of next best thing. Mm. So a lot of the TV mm. hierarchy is filled with people who, did, who didn't, weren't good enough to make it. <laughs> do you see what I mean? Yeah, so there's yeah. a sort of inherit second best I hope nobody <laughs> hears me yeah, saying I, that. I, I was going to say you'll never get back on TV ever. I don't know whether, it, yeah. uh, whether, the, um, whether the figures would stack up but you can see why somebody might want to do that yeah, you know, yeah. certainly. But I, mean, I think we, we sort of agreed that you know, the comedy's lively out there the problem is getting it onto the BBC and however much you can mm. do now with new media the BBC still has a, a big role to play but I mean as we sort of wrap this discussion up I mean, what how optimistic should we be? Is it is it hopeless? Is it just going to fall away over time? Is there something we should be doing? What's what's, what's people say? Well, I think what, what Rafe said about Netflix is is encouraging. In that the BBC will, whether or not it does go to subscription or whatever, the BBC will have to look at other models which have found mm -hmm. better, more successful means of of delivering to a wider range of of, of audience. And if you simply just allow, you know, as much as the beat, it's not out of the question, even if it remains on its current funding, that it could allow a certain amount of awareness of market forces, mm. you know, to, you know, whether it be clicks and likes or whatever, to, to just encourage it to be a little bit more, 
It doesn't even really need... It's not like you're looking for right-wing comedians. And to be honest, I wouldn't expect to see Jim Davison on there, who has become kind of pugnaciously right-wing and inappropriate. And, uh, you know... And I completely understand why they wouldn't put him on. But just stuff that isn't actually shoving woke politics down your throat Mm. all the time. You know, just stuff that is funny in in, in kind of examination of family life or whatever. It will discover that, I think. I'd love to be this, the next Director General of the BBC. Because <laughs> what I would do... It's been is an unusual pitch from would, that point I of view. I don't think I'm going to get the gig for various reasons. The, um, the, the opportunity, from an investment point of view, the opportunity that is the BBC and the worldwide reputation it has and the perception it has, you know, I would focus on making British programmes for British people but I would open up the market through iPlayer and through the various other means you can to so that people from abroad can subscribe. And there's all sorts of copyright issues with BBC Worldwide and the way they sell programmes that they can't do it. But crikey, see, you can, if you want to enough. And you could just make so much money opening the BBC up to a worldwide audience, making British programmes for British people, that you would have to charge neither a licence fee nor a subscription. Mm. It could be free. But you're going to hold your nose and make Top Gear again. (laughs) So what? No, no, I agree with that. That's why I said British programmes for British people. That's what they'll have to do. Because British people wanted to watch. It was made by Brits for Brits. And the world loved it. And that's what we have to get back to instead of, you know, making stuff that people... and, And often it is the forces of commerce. It's market forces that force you to do that. And, and so maybe it needs to be opened up to market forces so it becomes less protectionist. You can tell he's a libertarian, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think uh, actually incredibly optimistic I am uh, about the future of comedy. Like I said at the beginning, I think we are on the verge of a new alternative comedy. And I see that with Comedy Unleashed, which Dominic mentioned where he hosts often and we perform. I, I, I see that there's a hunger for, for a counterculture, mm. and I think that is now being formed. And with the internet, as Ray said, YouTube, and uh, you know, Netflix, I think, is still a form of gatekeeping, if you like. But certainly with YouTube, there yeah. is an opportunity uh, mm. for people who, who are funny, uh, but who are not welcome in the mainstream channels to develop an audience to, to become known uh, and, and then to be able to perform. And then, you know, as you say, market forces in the end will take over. Mm. Yeah. Um, Rafe, last thought? Yeah, no, definitely. And I think certainly <laughs> we've got Netflix, but there's a proliferation of other channels that mm. are coming out onto the internet. Why not have one just for comedy, you know, for, yeah. the, for the UK yeah. dealing with stand-up comics? So mm. people can go there and they know that they're going to have a wide diversity of opinion. It's called on Dave. This pla- <laughs> on this platform, yeah. well, if, if you want to look at, look at how you look 10 years ago. So it's um, I would say, though, it's stand-up comedy. I mean, when uh, it was funny, it was my agent, sadly deceased now, who created Live. It was originally Jack D at the Apollo mm-hmm. and then um, Michael McIntosh's Roadshow, both with a huge bank of electric lights behind them in a massive stage, revolutionised how we consume stand-up on telly. It's still nothing like as good as going to a gig. Mm. Right. You know, you really need to go out and see it live you need to smell it and 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 and, you know spill the beer Mm -hmm. and and then it really becomes alive i think finding new formats through which funny people can reach an audience through television is an ongoing and it does feel to me like we are due a new you know the panel game era was like 20 years or so we've had of of like have i got news for you and then all it's one of his we feel like, I feel like now, actually, if you watch some of the great American podcasts, which get millions of views, people mm. like Joe Rogan mm. will have Bill Burr on and they will spend three hours just chewing the fat and maybe smoking a joint, you know, whatever. And they, mm. they, you know, they go here, there and everywhere and there are no limitations at all. And a lot of people really like those shows. That might give us some kind of indication of where it could go. 
feel like we're, we're due a new format. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that the two leading podcasts in America are both done by comedians, yeah. Dave Rubin and Joe Rogan, who will have on Jordan Peterson and Douglas yeah. Murray and others onto his show, because stand-up comedians see the potential here. And, of course, in America, they're great defenders of free speech. But you're bang on the nail about opening up the BBC to the world, because we are one of the world's top-ranked soft-power nations. Our reach... We punch far above our weight because of our soft power. The BBC is one of the ways to do that. And it's a crying shame that people around the world, or even we can't watch the BBC when we travel yeah, abroad. It's, it's absolute nonsense. Yeah. And you've got to realise that we're, we're, we're regarded as the world's funniest nation, but we're, we're, we've got, only got you know, fuel fumes left in the tank right now, and it's 40 <laughs> Towers and Benny Hill that are constantly... And are you being served, of all things, in America that keep being cited? We need to get out there and push BBC, especially in this era of Brexit, we're promoting the best of British. Let's use the BBC to channel that soft power and give Britain a big boost. Mm. Well, on that optimistic note, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you to all of my guests and thank you for listening. This has been Counterculture.